2 Samuel chapter number 21, and uh, we're continuing our series on Wednesday nights. We've been going through the book of 2 Samuel, and tonight I don't have, I'll be honest with you, I don't have much of an outline uh, because it wasn't just a lot that could be outlined in this chapter. We're just going to go verse by verse through it, and we're only going to go halfway tonight. We'll deal with the second part next week, but I want to give you some things to think about in regards to this chapter. There's a lot going on here, a lot of lessons we can learn. And uh, you can definitely write down some statements and make some notes. Look down at verse number 1, 2 Samuel chapter 21, and verse 1. The Bible says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. I want you to notice <coughs> that David... Has, uh, is, is king here, and, and, and I don't have time to develop this tonight. I may go into it next week uh, more than just what I'm going to say, but I want you to understand that uh, we, we, we're transitioning into a, a concluding part of the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, basically, as we've been going through the book of First and 2 Samuel for the last, I don't know how long we've been in it now, a year or so, uh, everything has been in chronological order. But I want you to understand that when we uh, left, remember that sermon about Joab and the letter and all that? When we ended there, we basically ended the book of 2 Samuel. That was basically the last thing that happened in the life of David, that whole episode with Absalom and all of those things. Uh, I shouldn't say that. That was the last thing that happened in the life of David in First and 2 Samuel. We have other things that happened in the life of David in other books. What happens now here in 2 Samuel is we're no longer in chronological order, and we're just kind of getting a few random stories that God felt were needed for us to be able to know about David and about his life, but they're not necessarily in order. And it's not uncommon for this to happen in Scripture. The most, uh, probably the, the one that you're most familiar with, another book that does this is the book of Judges. If you remember, we studied through the book of Judges, and we basically went uh, through the entire book. It was in chronological order when it was going through the life of the different judges. But after Samson there, then you've got those last several chapters, and that's no longer in chronological order. It's just random stories that happened during the time of the judges. And that's what's happening here. And I don't have time to develop that tonight. We might talk about that more later on. But these, these chapters aren't necessarily happening in order. And all I want to say is this. When Absalom uh, uh, tried to take over the kingdom, that was one of the last things. Uh, one of the last big events that happened in the life of David. But here we have a famine, and probably, and I, and I can't prove this to you, and I don't know, I'm just letting you know, it's my personal guess, probably the, this account that's happening here about the famine in the Gibeonites was probably closer to the beginning of the reign of David, not to the end. Later on in the chapter, when we talk about the slaying of the giants, that's definitely towards the end of his reign. But if you look at verse 1, there's something bad that's happening here. There's a famine in the land, Three years. And the famine comes as a result of a drought. For the three years, God has not allowed it to rain uh, in the land of Israel. And it's caused a famine. It's caused heartache. And it happened for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, uh, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Let me say this uh, just as we begin tonight. And if you'd like to write statements down, you can write this statement down. When bad things happen, God may or may not be trying to get your attention. And you need to understand that. Sometimes God uses trials in our lives to try to get our attention. And here there was something that God needed David to deal with. And he allowed a famine to come into the land. For three years, and when David inquired of the Lord, then the Lord answered and told him, here's the reason why. Now, I, I want you to understand something, because there's a spiritual thought here. Sometimes when bad things happen, God may or may not be trying to get your attention. But let me say this also. Sometimes when bad things happen, it may or it may not be a result of your sin. If you notice there, if you look at verse 1 again, there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. David is king. David is in charge. Things are not going well during the reign of David. And the Lord answered, notice, it is for Saul. It wasn't David's sin that brought this famine. It is for Saul and Saul's sin and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, please understand, later 
we've already seen that when David, for example, sinned against uh, God and committed adultery with Bathsheba, a lot of bad things happened to David. And there was other things that happened. Sometimes bad things happen, and it may be a result of our sin in our lives, and it may be God disciplining us and chastising us. But we need to be very careful not to get this mindset that whenever something bad happens, it must be as a result of sin. Because someone could have looked at the reign of David and said, see, David must not have the power of God on his life. David must not have the favor of God on his life. David must be doing something wrong. Notice there's a famine in the land after he became king. But God says, no, it is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Keep your place there in 2 Samuel 21. We're going to talk about this here in a minute, but I just want to drive this point home. Go, go to the book of John, John chapter number 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And let me say this. Definitely, definitely there are times when bad things happen to us and it's a chastisement of God upon our lives. I mean, you cannot get away from that. There are times, the Bible makes that clear, that whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Bible says that God will chastise us and God will correct us and God will discipline us because we are his children. There are times when bad things happen, but we need to understand that not every time that something bad happens in our lives, that's exactly what was wrong with Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? They came to Job and they said, there must be sin in your life. There must be something you're doing wrong. God must not be pleased with you. Look at everything that's happening in your life. But the Bible tells us that Job was an upright man. He was a righteous and an upright man. He, he walked before the Lord with integrity, and God brought a trial in his life to make him better. Job said that when he was going to be, when he was done being tried, that he would come forth as gold. Uh, we can think of the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. And we could have looked at that and said, it must be because of Paul's sin in his life. But the Bible tells us that God put that thorn in his flesh so that he might be able to continue to use him, that the grace of God and the power of God may rest upon him. In John chapter number 9, we have a, a story that kind of puts the thought in place. John chapter 9, look at verse number 1. John chapter 9 and verse 1, the Bible says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, notice the question, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I like, I, I like and, and I'm being, I don't really like, but I always think it's funny, these negative type questions, you know, where there, there's not a positive answer. It's like, who sinned, you know, this man or his parents that he was born blind. So the, the, the indication is, or, or the, the, the underlying thought is, someone had to have sinned for this person to be born blind. Notice what Jesus says, verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And see, it's human nature to always assume, oh, you lost your job, you must be in sin. Oh, your child got sick, you must not be right with God. Oh, things aren't going well. And listen to me, sometimes things aren't going well in your life, and it is God chastising. It is God punishing. It is God correcting. But sometimes it's just something else. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes it's, it's like in this case where Jesus said, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Look down, skip down to verse number 6. Notice what Jesus says. Notice what the Bible says. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool Siloam, which is by interpretation sent, and he went his way thereof, therefore, and washed and came seeing. See, this man, the Bible tells us, Jesus said, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The Bible tells us that the reason that this young man, that this man was born blind from birth, he was born blind for one reason, that Jesus might walk by and perform a miracle and that the power of God might be seen and that the glory of God and that people would see him be healed and say, wasn't that the man that was blind? Wasn't that the man that was begging? And he was born blind that the works and the power of God might be manifest in him. He didn't sin in his mother's womb. His parents didn't sin. So we need to understand that sometimes when bad things happen, God may or may not be trying to get your attention. And sometimes when bad things happen, it may or may not be a result of sin. Go, go back to 2 Samuel 21. Of 
course, when it's time to preach, I'm going to have something in my, <clears throat> in my throat, so excuse me. 2 Samuel 21. Now, we need, we need to be careful. And listen, here you say, how do, how, do you, how do you determine? How do you determine whether it's sin that God's trying to bring attention to or whether it's he's refining us like Job or he wants to use something? Here's what you need to understand. When it's someone else, you always just assume the best. And when it's you, you always just assume the worst. You understand that? Now, here's what we like to do. When it's someone else, we always want to assume the worst. And when it's us, we want to assume the best, right? I mean, I lose my job, and it's like, I'm just a modern-day Job. I mean, I'm just so godly. God's just trying to refine me. You lose your job? Oh, it's because you're so wicked. You know what I mean? But listen to me. When bad things happen in our life, we ought to get alone with God and just ask, God, is there something that I'm doing that you're trying to get my attention with? Is there something that I'm doing? Is there something in my life? Is there something that you're trying to bring to my attention? That's the attitude that ought to be. And you know what? When other things happen in other people's lives, we ought to just assume, hey, we're praying for you. We love you. We don't know why this is happening to you. God's doing something in your life but you know what in your own life you always ought to be mindful maybe when famines come maybe when bad things happen it may be that God is trying to get your attention but but you know always assume the worst for yourself and always assume the best for others second uh, Samuel 21 look at verse 1 again I want you to notice what happens here then there was a famine in the days of David three years year after year David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered it is for Saul and for his bloody house because, notice, here, here's what Saul did. Because he slew, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them. I want you to make note of that. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. The Gibeonites were not part of the children of Israel. The Gibeonites were, the, were Amorites that were living, dwelling with the children of Israel. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them. They had made a promise to them. They had gone into a covenant with them or made a league with them. And Saul broke that promise and slew them and persecuted them. Now, I want you to understand what's going on with the Gibeonites. So let's go back to the book of Joshua so you can get this main story about the Gibeonites and what happened and what this is all referring to. Joshua chapter number 9 in your Old Testament, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, look at verse 3. In Joshua chapter 9, we find the story of the Gibeonites. Notice what the Bible says, Joshua chapter 9 and verse 3. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon, that's the Gibeonites, that's what we're talking about in 2 Samuel. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai. Remember, Joshua goes into Jericho and conquers it. Joshua goes into Ai. They had a little bit of a setback, but eventually conquers it. Notice verse 4. They, the Gibeonites, did work wilily. You, like, you see that word wilily? I like that word wilily in the Bible. They did work wilily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors. Now that word wildly means to trick, it means to fool, it means to deceive. You remember uh, an old cartoon character uh, called uh, Wiley Coyote, right? And what was he always trying to do? He's trying to trick the roadrunner, right? He's trying to deceive him. He's trying to make him run into a, a, a big cement wall or something, right? And he draw a picture like it's a tunnel or something like that. The word wildly means to trick. It means to, to deceive. It means to fool. It means to be a trickster. And that's what the Gibeonites did. They worked, they, they did work wildly and went and they made as if. So they weren't really, but they made as if they had been ambassadors. Notice, and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent, and bound up. So they go and they find a bunch of old sacks. They find a bunch of old uh, uh, wine bottles that are rent, that are torn. Notice verse 5. And old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. So they go get old bread. They go get old clothes. They go get old shoes. They go get old bottles. And, and, and notice what they do. Look at verse 6. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We become from a far country. 
Now remember, they're working wildly. They are deceiving. They are tricking the children of Israel. So they get all this old stuff, and they say, hey, we become from a far country. Now therefore, notice, make a league with us. What are they asking for? They're, they're asking for a covenant. They're asking for a contract. They said, hey, let, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's become partners. Let's not be enemies. Look at verse 7. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, peradventure, the word peradventure means perhaps, they said, peradventure, ye dwell among us. They said, well, well, what if you dwell near us? You know, then we can't make a covenant with you because God has told us to come in and conquer the land. God has told us to come in and destroy all the inhabitants of this land. Look at verse, uh, verse 8. And they said unto Joshua, we are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, who are ye? And from whence, the word whence means from what place come ye? And they said unto him, from a very far country. Now that's a lie. They're working wildly. They're deceiving. Thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and to Ah king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals, that's food, with you for the journey and go to meet them and say unto them, We are your servants. Now notice, notice, they're going to work wildly, okay? Therefore now, make ye a league, make a contract, make a covenant with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent. And these are garments, and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. Now they grabbed all this stuff already old, okay? But they bring it, and they're like, look, look, look at our old shoes. We've been walking for so long. And look at our bread. It's old and moldy. We got it right out of the oven before we left. Look at verse 13. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 14. And the men took their victuals. And here's where the children of Israel made a mistake. And here's where we always make a mistake. And asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. They did not ask God about it. They didn't pray about it. They, they just said, okay, well, yeah, your shoes look pretty tore up. Yeah, your wine bottles look pretty tore up. Yeah, that, that bread looks real moldy. You must have came from a long ways. Look at verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation, notice, swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they made a league. And that's the key after they made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. Okay, so here's what happens. The Gibeonites live near the Israelites. They come and they act as if they're coming from a long journey. They say, we live a long ways away. Make a league. Make a covenant with us. Give, you know, let's live in peace. And, the, and Joshua and the leaders get tricked into getting and going into this covenant, and they made a league, and they couldn't get out of it. And God told them, you've got to uphold that vow that you made. You've got to uphold, uh, uphold that contract that you made. But years and years later, Saul decides, I'm not going to abide by that league. I'm not going to abide by that contract. I don't care what God says. I don't care what Joshua says. And he tried to uh, kill and destroy the Gibeonites from the land. So God sends a famine. Because here's what I want you to understand. God expects you to keep your vows. Now, now listen to what I'm about to say. God expects you to keep your vows even when they're done under a false pretense. Think about that. God expects you to keep your vows even, even when they're done under a false pretense. Go, go to the book of Ecclesiastes real quickly. If you're there in 2 Samuel, you go past 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I was studying this afternoon for my Sunday night sermon, and not this coming Sunday, Brother Stucky will be preaching the second service, but in a couple of weeks, I was studying uh, in our Patriarch series. And it was funny because I was studying about Jacob, while thinking about this sermon for tonight. And it's interesting because what does Jacob do? Jacob marries Leah. Remember the story? We're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks. Jacob marries Leah, 
But Jacob thinks, Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel. And he makes a vow. And he consummates the marriage. And he does that under a false pretense. But guess what? As far as God is concerned, he was married to Leah. That was his wife. Jacob would say, well, I didn't know. I thought she worked wildly. She beguiled me. She deceived me. And here's what you need to understand. You better be very, very careful whenever you make a vow that you understand what you're getting yourself into because God expects you to keep a vow even when done under a false pretense. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Look at verse 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. Notice what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And verse 4, the Bible says this, When thou vowest a vow unto God, when thou vowest a vow unto God, notice what he says, Defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. And by the way, we live in a society today that doesn't believe this. I mean, people will make a vow. People will sign a contract. People will say, sure, you let me borrow this much money on a credit card and I'll pay it back. You let me borrow this much money uh, for a vehicle and I'll pay it back. You let me borrow this much money for a house and I'll pay it back. And then they don't. And you say, well, is that, is it that really is that big of a deal? Here's what the Bible says. God hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. And, and, you know, as Christians, we need to live with this mentality that if you, and by the way, let me just say this. You say, well, well, you don't understand. You know what? Just, it's foolish to get into a bunch of loans to begin with. Amen. The Bible says that the, lend, that, the, uh, that, the uh, that the borrower is servant to the lender. And let me just give you some advice. Get out of debt. Get out of debt. And then just run away from debt. Never go down that road. Just try to stay, you know, you say, well, I can't drive. Then just do what you got to do. But look, the Bible says if you make a vow, pay it. And you say, well, they tricked me, and they told me the interest rate was going to be, and then it ballooned, and then blah, blah, blah. God expects you to pay a vow even when it's done under false pretense. Look at verse 5. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay God says it's better for you not to vow. Go, go to the book of Matthew. Let me show you what Jesus said about this. Matthew chapter number 5. You got the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter number 5. We need to be very careful about the vows we go into because, look, God expects you to keep a vow even when done, even when done under false pretense. Well, they tricked us. Here, Saul could have said, well, they tricked us and they lied. Therefore, it's null and void, and I'm going to go destroy them. But no, God was on the side of the Gibeonites, and God created a famine because he wanted that corrected. Why? Because God expects you to keep a vow, even when it's done under false pretense. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 33. Notice what Jesus said. Matthew 5, 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thy notes. And that's true. But notice what Jesus says, verse 34. But I say unto you, God says, here's a better thing, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is a footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by, the, by thy hand, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And listen to me. Jesus is saying here, and we as Christians, we need to be careful not to go around and just, you know, swearing all the time. You hear people say these things, well, I swear to, and by the way, if you're swearing to and you're using the name of God there, that's blasphemous. Amen. You ought not be, you know, just throwing the name of God around. The Bible says that we ought to be, when we use the name of God, we should use it reverently. But look, even you say, well, I, I'm gonna, I swear I'm going to do this, or I promise I'm going to do it. Hey, be very careful to use words and terms like that. You know, your communication ought to be yay, yay, and nay, nay. And by the way, let me say this. You ought to have so much character in your life that when you say you're going to do something, you're actually going to do it. When you say yay, yay, it's actually yay. And when it's nay, nay, there are people, they'll tell me, Pastor, I'm going to do this, and I think to myself, I'll be shocked if that actually gets done. Because their life, they, they've just proven their life is such that they'll say, oh, I'm going to be there, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to go there, and it's like, no, you're not. You know you're not. I know you're not. Why are you saying it? You know, it's like you're not going to do that. And, but that not ought to be the way we live our lives. 
We ought to try to live our lives when we say something. There used to be a day in our country when you shook someone's hand and you looked them in the eye. That meant something. You didn't have to write some big old contract and I'm going to make sure that I pay this. You just shook someone's hand and that meant I'm going to pay you. That's not the society we live in anymore. You know what? God expects you to keep your vows. God expects you. And he says it's better not to swear at all. And, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, application that we can make today in regards to this, go, go back to 2 Samuel 21, the biggest application we can make to this is in, is in marriage. Probably the biggest, the biggest vow that we make in our lives is when we vow before God and men to, uh, to, to be married and to be faithful till death do us part. And you know what? God expects you to keep that vow. And if you're here tonight, I say this every time. And it's funny because I say this every time and people still will like criticize me. Pastor's just preaching against me because I'm divorced. Look, half of you are divorced, all right? I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. It's just true, okay? If you're divorced, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you right But, you know, people are like, Pastor's just picking on me all the time. It's like I'm picking on like half of you, all right? Half of our society is divorced, all right? Just deal with it, okay? I'm not going to quit preaching on it because here's the thing. Half of you aren't divorced. There's a bunch of kids here that aren't divorced and teenagers that aren't divorced. And I'd rather preach to them. And, 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 and you know what? If you got divorced and you're married now, then just stay with that one and be faithful to that one and love that one. And now that's God's will for your life. I'm not mad at you. But listen to me. If you haven't been divorced or you're a kid here or you're a child here or you're a young person and you haven't even been married yet, listen to me. Be very, very careful and think real long and hard and make sure you inquire of the Lord before you stand at a platform somewhere and make a vow with someone you don't know. And today, you know, people want to just get married so flippantly. And it's like I've I've known someone for 24 hours and I'm going to go get married with them. And look, I wish, I wish that I could give you the stories and I can't. Because I'm a pastor and I'm not allowed to do that. I wish I could, I, and, and people shouldn't say this out loud anyway, but I wish I could just give you the names of the people just in my, in my short span in ministry that have said to me like, I just didn't know my husband was like. I just didn't know my wife was like. I just had no idea that they, and I didn't know that they were into, and I didn't know, but listen to me, God expects you to keep a vow even when done under false pretense. And you better just be careful not to make, be making flippant vows. And you better just be careful. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to marriage, you need to be careful. And this is what I tell young people all the time. No young people likes me when I say this, but it's, it's true. If this is God's will for your life, oh, they're just so perfect. They're just so wonderful. They're just so great. If this is God's will for your life right now, let me explain something to you. It'll be God's will for your life in a year from now. It'll be God's will for your life six months from now. There'll be God's will, you know, but, but maybe you need to just wait. Maybe you need to just calm down. Maybe you need to, well, I mean, I mean, look at their shoes. They're so old. Of course they're from down the street. Well, of course this is, I mean, I worked seven years for Rachel. I'm so glad that I finally, oh, wait, that's Leah. You're still married. You're still about. God still expects it. And I, I tell people all the time, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Don't rush it. No big deal. You know, my wife and I got married. Let me just explain. My wife and I got married when we were 18 years old, two weeks after we graduated high school. Best decision I made in my life. She got ripped off, but I, 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 it was good for me. You know, but, you know, we, we, we decided, hey, our kids aren't getting married until they're 20 years old. We've just decided that in our home. That's our rule. I, I just don't want my 18-year-old daughter getting pregnant. I think, she, I think that's too young. We've chosen that. And by the way, let me say this. I think, I think, that parents should not be allowed to choose their children's spouse, okay? I don't, we're not into courtship. I don't think parents should be allowed to choose their children's spouse, but I do believe that parents should have veto power and say, no, you're not marrying this person, or no, you're going to wait, or no. And listen to me, listen to me. You figure out, this is the advice, you, if, the advice my dad gave me when I was getting married. He said to me, you watch how she treats her dad because that's how she's going to treat you, son. And if she's mouthing off to her dad, if she's, and I'm telling you young people, that person you like, they're, well, my mom said we need to wait. You see that bad attitude? Just start running. Listen to me, young men. You see that young lady mouthing off to her mom? It's going to be you next. And then you're, you're going to be sitting in my office. Well, I just didn't know that. And I'll be like, yeah, well, you know, God expects you to keep your vow. And just stay at it. And just, you know, work at it. God will help you out. Listen to me. 
God expects you to keep the vow. And here you have Saul. You have Saul who's breaking that league, breaking that covenant, breaking that uh, covenant that he made with the, with the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were wrong. They were lying. They were liars. But God still expected them to keep it. Go back to 2 Samuel 21. Look at verse 3. Let me show you something else. When you sin, when you sin, it affects your family. Listen to me, Mom. When you sin, it affects your family. Listen to me, Dad. When you sin, it affects your family. Notice verse 3. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, Notice what they said. We will have no silver nor gold of, the, of, of Saul. Here's what they said. We don't want money, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. Here's what they said. We don't want revenge. Because here's what Saul did. He was randomly killing Gibeonites. They said, David, we don't want you to just randomly go around. Is it warm in here? I am hot. Can we shut that thing off? Somebody help me with that. Appreciate it. Thank you. He said, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. They said, we don't want revenge. Okay, we don't want random killing. And he said, what ye shall say, that will I do for you. Look at verse 5. Then they answered the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coast of Israel. Look at verse 6. Let seven men of his sons, that's Saul's sons, be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah. You know, they said, we don't want money and we don't want revenge, but here's what we do want. We want justice. They said, we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I want you to notice what David says, I will give them. They said, we want seven of Saul's sons, and we want to hang them on a tree. And David agrees to it. David says, I, I will give them. And then notice how God reacts to it. Look at verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Remember Mephibosheth? Because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. I don't have time to go there. But remember, David had made an oath. David had, had gone into a covenant with Jonathan that he would, they would always look out for each other's children. So David spared Mephibosheth from having to be put to death because of the oath that he made with Jonathan, the son of Saul. Look at verse 8. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bare unto Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth. This is a, a Mephibosheth that's named after the other Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first day, in the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of the harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor beasts of the field by night. Skip down to verse 14. Just, I just want you to notice something. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish, his father, and they performed all the king's commandments. And after that, God was entreated for the land. So I want you to notice, there's a famine, right? Why is there a famine? For three years? Because there's a drought. But notice, after the seven are put to death, in verse 10, the Bible says that water dropped upon them out of heaven. So the drought's done. The famine's over. Look at verse 14. God was entreated for the land. Because people will often look at this chapter and they'll say, see, this is why I don't believe the Bible. There, they put seven of Saul's sons to death, you know, and that's not right. But listen, listen to me. And, and just, you know, if you just casually reading the scripture, you might think to yourself like, whoa, what is this about? Or why are they putting uh, seven of Saul's sons to death? You know, should this be allowed? Is this something that's right? But I want you to notice, not only did David agree to it, but also God acknowledged it. Once they died, God allowed the rain to come. And once they died, God was entreated for 
the land. And you may ask, well, then what's going on? Well, let me just give you a couple of verses, a couple of things to consider. Go, go to the book of Numbers, Numbers 35, and look at verse number 33. Numbers 35 and verse 33. You can find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 35 and verse 33. Numbers 35 and verse 33. The Bible says this. Numbers 35 and verse 33. Here's a commandment from God. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are. For the blood, it defileth the land. See, when you shed blood, it defiles the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein. Notice. The land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. You see that? Now look, it was God that brought the famine. It was God that brought the, the drought. And it was God that said in Numbers 35, 33, that the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. And it was God that decided to allow it to start raining and allow the children of Israel to be in tree of the Lord. So what that tells me is that these seven sons of Saul had to have done something to be part of the shedding of this blood. Because when they were killed, then the land was cleansed. Then the atonement was made. Because the blood cannot be cleansed just by random people dying. It has to be cleansed by the blood of him that shed it. Now go back to 2 Samuel 21. Look at verse 1. 2 Samuel 21 and verse 1. 2 Samuel 21 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 21, 1. Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, it is for Saul. Don't miss this. It is for Saul. Notice, and, and for who? And for his what? Bloody house. See, it wasn't just Saul. It wasn't just Saul that was killing the Gibeonites. It was his bloody house. It was his house shedding blood. And, and so I believe, I believe that these seven sons had something to do with the murder of the Gibeonites, the slaughter of the Gibeonites. They either took part in it or they profited from it or they didn't, you know, they had an opportunity to stop it and they chose not to. I, I don't know what all the details are, but I don't think that this was just, you know, an injustice because the Gibeonites said, we don't just want random Israelites killed. We want seven sons of Saul. So I believe, I believe that these sons and the house of Saul in general had something to do with this slaughter of the Gibeonites, and there was blood on their hands, which is why it was justified for them to be put to death, which is why David even agreed to this and why God acknowledged it by allowing it to rain after that they died and by God establishing and being entreated for the land after that they died. Now, here's the thing, and here's what's interesting. Go, go back to 2 Samuel 21. You may ask, okay, okay, I, I may, maybe, you know, I, I see that. I, I see where you're going with that. Why doesn't God just spell that out in Scripture? You know, why, why does he have to? Because when you read it, it doesn't seem like that. You know, you got to cross-reference another passage, and you got to look at exactly what it says. You know, why does God do that? I think God will often in the Bible put things that make him look bad, that when you dig a little further, you realize, oh, wait, this wasn't God being bad, you know? I think God will often do that just to check our own hearts. Because, you know, you know what I've noticed is there are some people who they're just looking for a reason to get mad at God. I mean, they're just looking for a reason to quit on God. They're just looking, you know, if I can just, as soon as I find that passage where, God, you're not just, then I'm just going to quit on you, you know. And it's like the Bible is always guilty until proven innocent. You know what I mean? And I think God sometimes will just purposely, he could have spelled it out. Like he could have just got into the story and said, hey, the sons of Saul, they did this and that. But I think he just chose not to do that just to see like how would we react when we get to a passage and we think, God, why did you allow that? Are we just going to get mad at God or are we going to say, well, you know what? There must have been a good reason for it. Well, you know what? There must have been. Well, I wonder why he called them a bloody house. I wonder why, you know, God accepted this. If God accepted it, then it must have been right. If God, because God said that the only thing that would cleanse the bloody land is when the blood is shed of those who shed that blood. And by the way, let me say this. If we don't punish the murderer, then the, the land will never be. See, the United States of America has a lot of blood on it. I mean, we, we got 3,000 children being put to death every day around here in, in our country. And, and, and there's a famine coming. 
And there's a trial coming. There's, there's punishment coming. God will not just turn away. And the only way, listen to me, the only way that that blood can be atoned for, that that blood can be forgiven, is when the blood of the murderers is shed. It's murder to commit an abortion. It's mur- those doctors and those nurses and those women that are doing it, they are committing murder. They are shedding innocent blood. And, and if we just allow it, and in, in America, even Christians today, we'll say we're mad about it. We'll say we're upset about it. We'll say we don't like it. But you know what? It doesn't really bother us. We just continue on with our days. You know, we ought to, be, we ought to realize. We ought to realize that there, there are children dying every day. And, and then on top of that, you'll have women taking birth control pills that end life after conception and will kill their own children in the womb. And it's like, well, you know, I've got to work. Okay, whatever. Well, you know, I just I can't have another one. I've, I've got to have my freedom. You know what? You are shedding innocent blood. That's murder, especially when you're doing it with the knowledge and knowing what's happening in your womb. Second Samuel 21, look at verse 8. Let me give you one more thing. Second Samuel 21, verse 8. Let me give you one last thought. Don't trust the notes in your Bible. Don't trust the notes in your Bible. If your Bible has notes in it, don't, don't trust them. Don't read them. They're wrong. You say, why, why are you saying that? Look at 2 Samuel 21. Look at verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. Now, well, let me, let me say this before I go there. I have a, the King James Bible that I have, I specifically chose this Bible because it has no notes in it. You know, it has, like, you know, like the Schofield reference Bible. It's like, it's like this much scripture and this much notes, you know, whatever. I chose this Bible because it has no notes in it. But what this Bible does have, it has in the center of the column. I don't know if you can see that. In the center of the column, it'll give you cross-references sometimes. Well, you know, I'm not against cross-references. I think cross-references are fine. Using a concordance, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But in this Bible, what I noticed when I was studying for this passage, because I, I was just curious as to what it, what it said, and I notice it's not just cross-references. There's actually a part here where it'll try to correct the Bible. Because in this passage, there's something that may look like a, an error in Scripture. Now, notice what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 21, look at verse 8. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah. Because remember, the Gibeonites, they asked for seven sons, right, of Saul. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bare unto Saul. So this is Saul's concubine. Saul had... Uh, two sons with this concubine Rispa. So David takes two of her sons to make up the seven that are going to get hanged, Armani and Mephibosheth. Notice what it says. And, and the five sons of Michal. You see that? The five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. Now, if you've been with us in the first and second Samuel series, you know this. Michal was married to who? David. Michal is David's wife. And, and here it says that David took five of the sons of Michal, the, the daughter of Saul. Now, go to 1 Samuel chapter number 18 and look at verse number 19. 1 Samuel chapter number 18 and look at verse 19. Let me just show you something real quickly. Now, do you notice in 2 Samuel 21, 8, it says, uh, the five sons of Michal, the, da- the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite, all right? So it said that they were also, it gives us the father of the five sons, who's Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. Go to 1 Samuel 18, look at verse number uh, 19. But it came to pass at the time when, notice, Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, to wife. And if you look at uh, verse number 20, let me turn that, I didn't even turn there myself. 1 Samuel 18, and look at verse number 20. In verse 20 it says, And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul that the thing, and the thing pleased uh, him. So I want you to notice, it wasn't Michal that was married to uh, Adriel, but it was her sister, uh, what's her name, uh, where is it, Merab. She was the one, according to 1 Samuel 18, 19, that was uh, married uh, to Adriel the Mahalathite. So, so here's the thing. Go back to 1 Samuel 21, 8. 1 Samuel 21, 8 says that it was the five sons of Michal. The five sons of Michal. So 
I'm looking at this and I'm wondering to myself, okay, well, Michael is married to David, not Adriel. And, and the Bible tells us that Michael had no children. Remember, David and Michael ended up getting an argument. And, and he basically just put her away. I mean, he, he was still married to her, but they never had a physical relationship. The Bible actually tells us she never had any children. So what's going on here? Well, I noticed in my Bible that right next to Michael, there's a little number, a number, a, a number six. So out of curiosity, I go over and look at the number six in, the, in my column, and it says, or Michael's sister. So they're saying, like, it's a mistake that they said the five sons of Michael. It's a mistake that they said the five sons of Michael, and they're trying to tell me what it should say is the five sons of Michael's sister, all right? Now, here's the, here's the thing about that, okay? I want you to notice what the Bible says. Look at, look at 2 Samuel 21, and look at verse 8. And the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, I want you to notice this phrase. You're going to see one, two, three, four, five words there, okay? Let's read those words together, okay? I'm going to read up to it, and then I want you to read the next five words together, starting from the word whom, all right? But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, let's read it together, whom she bare unto Saul. Do you see that, okay? So Rizpah bare two sons unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. And, so he took the two sons of Rizpah, whom she bare unto Saul, and David took the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. Okay, let's read from the word whom. Whom she brought up. Do you see that? Now for Rizpah, it says, whom she bare. For Michal, it says, whom she brought up. Not whom she bare, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. Go to Esther real quickly. Esther chapter number 2. You're there in 2 Samuel. You're going to go past 1 Kings, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, Esther, Nehemiah, Esther. You can look up this phrase, brought up, throughout the Bible. And there's many places you can look at. And it's very clear what it's talking about. But I'm just going to show you one. Esther chapter number 2. Esther chapter number 2. Look at verse 7. Esther chapter 2 and verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. You're familiar with the story of Esther, so I won't go into the context. But Esther 2.7, notice what it says. And he, this is Mordecai, or Mordecai, and he brought up, you see that word brought up there? Two words, brought up. Hadassah, that's the Jewish name of Esther. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Okay, so what does the phrase brought up mean? It means that you raise them. Okay, why did Mordecai, why did he bring up, or why is it said that he brought up Esther? Here's why, because her mom and dad died, so he raised her. So what, what do you think Michal did with the five sons of Adriel and of her sister Mirab? Probably what happened is Mirab died. And here you've got Aunt Michal, who's got no children anyway, and she brought them up, or she raised them. And here's what's interesting. Rizpah, when her two sons are dead, what does she do? She's out there, you know, day and night on a rock. The vultures are coming. The animals are coming. She's shooing them away. You don't see Michael doing that. Why? Well, you know, I'm sure Michael loved those kids, but there's just a connection there that a mother's going to have that an aunt's not. You understand what I'm saying? So, you know, so what is it a contradiction in the Bible? Well, look, it says that one bear unto Saul and one brought up. But here's what's funny. Here's what's funny about my Bible. So then, so here's the thing. They, they told me, right, they put a little number six, and they're like, oh, that's a mistake. When it says my cause, uh, the, the, the five sons of my cause, uh, the daughter of Saul, it should say the five sons of my cause sister. So here's what's funny. When it says whom she brought up, okay, they put a number seven next to that. So the number seven says this, whom she brought up actually means that she bare them. So here's the thing. It's like, they're like, oh, no, no, it doesn't, it doesn't say she brought them up. It say, that means she bare them. Here's what's funny. In the same verse, it already used that phrase. So you say, what, what's going on? It's just these people have this attitude. Of course the Bible is wrong. Of course 
the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. I mean, of course the Bible made a mistake here. We know Michal didn't have these children. That has to be a mistake. So they're like, number six, actually, we're smarter than the Holy Ghost. It should be Michal's sister. Then they get to where it says brought up. And somebody said to them, like, well, you know, it says here that she brought them up. It didn't say that she bare them. And she's like, oh, okay, let's add another note that says that means that she bore them. And it's like, why don't you just leave the Bible alone? Why don't you just let, here's the point that I'm trying to make, is people will often just be trying to find something wrong with the Bible. I just, I just, it's guilty and so proven it. You know what? Maybe if you don't understand something, maybe you ought to realize that you're just not smart enough to understand it. You got to study it to try some approval. Maybe if you, if you look at something and it seems like a contradiction, you just ought to pray and ask God to help you and do some research and not go to YouTube and not go to Google and just study the Bible and just go through and look at the scriptures and try to figure out, okay, what's going on here? It says that one bear, it says that one brought up. When you look up the word brought up, every time you look up the word brought up, and I looked at every time in the Bible, I just gave you one example. Every time you look up the word brought up, is, there's only two options. Either it's talking about an object that someone literally brought up, like they brought up the ark of God, or it's talking about someone raising a child that's not theirs. That's it. And you find that all throughout the Bible. You find Jehu is wanting to kill the sons of Ahab, so he sends to the to a city, because Ahab's already dead, and he sends to a city, and he talks to the men that brought up the sons of Ahab. I mean, and you find that all throughout the Bible. That's what the term means. So there's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's something wrong with the notes. Okay? So don't, you know, just realize this. And I'm not saying that, you know, men are always wrong and don't ever listen to anybody. All I'm saying is this. Don't ever get this attitude where the Bible's wrong where the Bible is guilty and proven innocent. We ought to just have this attitude. If I don't understand this, there must be something wrong with my understanding. There must be something wrong with the way I'm looking at this. There must be. There, I don't, God, why did you choose to kill the seven sons of Saul? I don't, I don't get that. But you know what? I'm not going to get mad at you, God. I'm just going to realize that you probably have a good reason for that. And I'm just going to do my best to study it out, do my best to realize it, do my best to understand what the Bible says. So just in review, as we're finishing up tonight, when bad things happen, God may or may not be trying to get your attention. And when bad things happen, it may or may not be as a result of our sins. And when you make a vow to God, God expects you to keep it, even when under false pretense. So before you make a vow, before you make a vow, make sure you know what you're getting into. Before you make a vow, make sure you've waited. Before you make a vow, don't make the same mistake that Joshua made. Inquire of the Lord. Ask the Lord. Pray about it. Seek God's will in it. See, and let me say this, our sins will always affect others. And here's Saul. Saul decided to break the vow with the Gibeonites, and he got his sons involved, and he got his family involved. He, got his, he made his house bloody. And Saul's already long gone and dead, but yet his seven sons had to pay for it. Why? Because he got, they got involved in the sins of their fathers. So we need to be careful as leaders, as fathers or mothers, as pastors, or whatever area that you get to lead in, we need to be careful not to involve those that are following us in sins. We need to walk in integrity and make sure that we're walking righteously before God. And then the last, the last uh, lesson there is don't trust the notes in your Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible, Lord. Thank you for giving us a Bible that we can trust. And Lord, help us always, help us always to exercise faith in your word and not and what people tell us and notes tell us. Because sometimes there's not contradictions in Scripture. God just, you just want to see if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to study. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us. I pray you'd help us. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be uh, people, men and women of our word. When we make a vow, we keep it. When we sign a contract, we pay it. When we shake a hand and look someone in the eye, that we do, to the best of our ability, what we said we're going to do. In your precious name I pray, amen.